0: Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Therner. Today I'm going to be talking with Matthew Schneider Meyerson and Brent Ryan Bellamy about their new book, An Ecotopian Lexicon, out from University of Minnesota Press in 2019. An Ecotopian Lexicon is a glossary of loan words from world languages, activist subcultures, and speculative fiction. Words that may help us rethink our relationship with the earth and its inhabitants as we face the challenges of global warming and mass extinction. I'm very pleased to be sharing with you my interviews with the editors of this timely and important work. Matthew and Brent, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you here with me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I really uh, love and adore this book and have just had such a wonderful time exploring it. And um, I'm so happy to have this this time to talk about it. Can you start us off by describing how this project came about and was conceptualized?
1: Sure, I guess I can start there and then Brent, you can pick up. Um, so I suppose the, one of the kind of um, origins for the book was a number of other loanwords kind of book or uh, keywords kind of books that have come out in environmental studies over the last, um, five or 10 years. Um, and so in particular, I was at a, a panel for the sort of, uh, for introduction of one of the uh, keywords for American studies, uh, which is an excellent book about sort of terms like nature, culture, the environment, and sort of the various ways in which these terms are, are part of the problems that we face in the era of climate change, et cetera. Um, and I started wondering, you know, we know that some of these terms are problematic, um, that some of the the concepts that they signify are problematic. But what are some better terms um, that might actually sort of help us rather than than hinder the uh, the struggle to to maintain a livable planet? Um, and so, you know, I got thinking about speculative fiction, which is something that I'm always interested in, and and uh, living overseas, I suppose in particular, I'm interested in uh, in different cultures and. And sort of the ways that they have, they have different concepts. Um, and then Brent and I uh, started talking. Um, and Brent, do you want to pick up and talk about Shikata I maybe?
2: Well, I, I have a kind of memory of you pitching this as a kind of um, academic party game that I want to talk about, actually. Uh, we were in Austin for a conference. I think that might have been the first time Matthew and I met, actually. Um, And I remember Matthew posing the question to the table, like, what are some kind of terms from science fiction or um, activist struggles that would be really useful to think through climate crisis? And it was really fun, Uh, especially. And this is something I've heard people say about the book. I think in that initial question, there's something about getting to use your imagination to think through this thing that's normally um, very painful to think about um and so i was right on board right away and shikaragane is one of the terms that i thought of i actually thought of a different one first and i was trying to remember what it was but it didn't it didn't quite fit the idea Um, but then I think Matthew, you were even thinking of turning it into a collection at that point, but mm-hmm. uh, I wrote to follow up because I was so excited by the idea, and it turned out that you needed a co-editor. So mm-hmm. that's also a little bit of the origin of of how we started working on this. Just like it's such a compelling idea
0: that uh, it's the kind of thing you want to follow up on and think more about. Can you describe for a moment uh, what Shikata Ganae is for the listeners? Oh, yes, I'd be happy to. Um, it is a loan
2: word that has a Japanese origin, and it means uh, it cannot be helped. Um, Shikata Ganae, it, where I encountered it was in the science fiction of Kim Stanley Robinson in the uh, Mars trilogy. It's used by a Japanese character to kind of forward or develop a certain path of development on uh, Mars, which they're terraforming in the series. Um, And I asked my colleague, Sheena Wilson, um, to collaborate on The Lone Word because Sheena has um, a history of studying the sort of mid 20th century um, internment of Japanese-Americans and Japanese-Canadians around World War II. And this term, shikaragane, I think comes into Robinson not explicitly, but implicitly um, by a character that might have had some sort of history with this internment. And so it's a complicated term and we're trying to kind of pivot what cannot be helped in the phrase. Um, I can say more about that in a moment if you'd like, but I think that's basically the crux of it is what what is it about how Robinson uses the term that allows us to think through the it in a different way? So is climate change inevitable at this point? Yes. How do we respond to it though? Does that get to shift in some way? Um, and that's sort of what we think about in the entry.
0: Yeah. So the book as a whole is described as a, a lexicon of loan words. In other words, it's not um, a list of neologisms, and uh, but instead already existing terms and concepts that we might use to rearticulate human values and relationships and politics and conceptualize a changed future. And um, I'm I'm interested in this choice to collect uh, loan words instead of um, uh, defining the many, many neologisms that have come out of the academic uh, world in recent years to describe climate change and alternative uh, ways of thinking about the world and nature. How did you think about this difference in in, in your choice of, of words for this? That's a great question. Um,
1: I think at some point we were open to academic terms, um, but they felt like that's something that people have talked about a little bit already. It's sort of been done. Um, And we felt there would be a little bit more creativity in sort of asking um, authors and soliciting um, abstracts that were about other cultures that were about speculative fiction and that were about activist subcultures. And so, you know, there's, there's certainly an argument that neologisms can have their value. So we could have solicited a book that was, you know, 15 words that should exist, that people are just kind of, you know, making it up, ex nihilo. Um, but we felt like there was something sort of more creative, more sort of energetic, more vibrant um, about seeing what other cultures sort of have been doing. Um, you know, the idea of sort of facing climate change um, and all the other socio-ecological crises that we're facing at this moment with kind of, you know, a a full tapestry of human experience um, and sort of recognizing in particular in this moment where, you know, politicians are talking about um, building walls. um, There's a kind of rise of ethno-nationalism around the world, sort of the value of um, a kind of internationalism um, as well as the value of sort of drawing on the the creativity that, uh, that authors and activists have already been exercising. And so, you know, I think those kinds of neologisms are certainly fellow travelers with what we're doing. um, But we thought that this would be a slightly different angle.
0: Well, related to that as well, you know, a number of the of the words explored and defined in this book uh, have to do with uh, very quotidian parts of life. Uh, You know, rather than large reconceptualizations of the cosmos or of human history, uh, a lot of them are uh, things we all do every day, from from greeting each other to uh, what happens in a community garden. And I'm interested in this attention to our daily lives and how we think through the the futures that we uh, might have.
2: Definitely, I think a good term there that that sort of sits in the everyday but also points out towards the larger changes under work is nakay, the kind of um, term in the Maldives for a micro season, right? These sort of two week periods that the weather is constantly changing. And so there's something about, I like this focus on the everydayness lens that, that there's something about the shifts that are happening and how we can respond to them through a greeting or through an acknowledgement of the weather, that there's, there's a way that a lot of thinking can happen at that level too, um, as well as at higher levels of abstraction and, and, uh, as well as at the level of the neologism for, um, for the precise things that we see today. And I mean, in the foreword, Kim Stanley Robinson gives a great, um, example of updating a term from the Science in the Capital trilogy, like there was no uh, um, polar vortex uh, named, or at least Robinson says, I wasn't familiar with it, right? But then in updating the book, here comes a new term. But Nakay kind of shows us that there are terms already in existence um, that we may not be familiar with. So it asks us to come together. And I think that including these greetings, for instance, is a way that we encourage people to do that. It's sort of us saying like, hello, what do you think about what's going on now?
0: Yeah, that reminds me of thinking about uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, foreword. He at one point describes this as, uh, I think he puts it a, a work of speculative fiction in the shape of a lexicon. And uh, it makes me think about how readers should and do encounter this book. And I'm wondering a bit about how you're hoping uh, readers will use it and what they'll, uh, what they'll do with it. One,
2: I want to just jump in right here to say uh, just a brief anecdote is that it is a joy to hand this book to people. Uh, I am just so pleased with how it looks. And one of the things that um, the press suggested was having the list of the terms on the cover. And I sort of thought about this as an aesthetic choice, but in handing it to people, they, they'll look and point at the cover and say, oh, hyper-empathy, you know, and want to flip to that entry. So it just, uh, one way that I hope people, and I've seen people take it up, is just with openness and curiosity, like what, um, what is contained in the book is on the cover. Uh, and I hope people just go to what they're drawn to um, as a kind of first step.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's clearly a book. Uh, so for, for folks who haven't picked it up, it's, it's actually got two sort of separate ways of reading it. Um, you know, it, it proceeds, uh, alphabetically. Um, and then there's also what we call another path, which has sort of, um, more traditional categories, which include greetings, resistance, dispositions, uh, perception, uh, desires beyond the human and beyond the environment. Um, and so, but it's clearly the kind of book that you can just sort of flip around. And um, we were really happy to see that uh, uh, another scholar told us that uh, he was reading you know, a, a chapter, and each chapter is about 10 pages or so. He was reading a chapter every night before he, he went to sleep, and it was kind of filling him with uh, a sense of possibility rather than the kind of typical existential dread that a lot of uh, environmentalists go to sleep with. Um, and I think that was an important focus for us. Um, You know, I think there's a lot of critique out there, and that's generally what scholars do. Um, That's what we do well, for sure. But we felt like there was sort of a need for um, something that was slightly more positive without, of course, being, you know, blindly optimistic or naive. And it's not so much an optimistic book. It's a book that's kind of trying to ride that razor's edge, you know, what Donna Haraway calls staying with the trouble while still remaining aware of the kind of possibilities that remain at this point, moving forward, and, and as kind of reminding oneself of all the different ways that there are um, to live and to think and to learn. Um, and so I don't know if any of these words will actually get picked up. I mean, it's, it's uh, on one hand kind of nice to imagine that they might, but I think um, more importantly, we want the book to inspire a, uh, a sense of creativity and action in our readers, if possible. And we tried to sort of edit the book so that it would actually be engaging to readers, something that they would want to pick up, something that they would want to assign in their classes.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, that reminds me that we've really seen in recent, uh, I guess, decades now, uh, the total failure uh, and bankruptcy of alarmist calls to action around climate change. And uh, every month or two, we now see a new report coming out that, Uh, spells out our doom in in ever more um, urgent terms. And yet these remain now still page six sort of news. And so I'm wondering a little bit about how you're seeing the role of a lexicon and a new vocabulary in imagining another future and also in how we achieve such a future or how we imagine a different kind of politics of Mm -hmm. climate change
2: one one way I think is in what you kind of identify as that gap between uh, knowledge and action. Like, how can we go from knowing a thing is real and threatening to acting in a way that might um, move past it or move through it or produce a kind of future, a good future that we might want. And I think that um, one of the entries I would point to that I think exemplifies what I think the the book can do um, is Eve- Evelyn O'Malley's uh, Mishnach, um, which gets translated uh, from Gaelic as a kind of um, courage. But uh, she, O'Malley, ref- reflects on having to do this kind of work in Ireland as a kid, and translating some of the great works of literature, English literature, uh, into Irish and having to translate Macbeth and using the term Mishnach to kind of refer to the the um, kind of vaulting ambition of Lady Macbeth. And O'Malley's like, this isn't quite right. And I don't think she would have liked that translation because there's something more quiet about Mishnach, more... Um, vulnerable right O'Malley describes it as stepping into a new school for the first time that hmm. there's something uncertain in front of you and you're scared but you still take that step um, and so I think that I think the concept the idea of, of Mishnach, um, whether or not it gets used as a term in the world is something that for O'Malley really inhabits that space between um, knowing and acting, right? That there's a kind of pause there um, that ties right into this this kind of um, the urgency, right? Like there's an interesting temporality to climate crisis where we do maybe need to slow down a little bit and look at things and think about things um in in new ways. And I hope that book can help people to do that.
1: Yeah, I would just add, you know, Mishnex's one of my favorites. It's it's sort of one of the essays that feels as much as sort of creative nonfiction as an academic essay. Um, But I think we we really do face two problems. And one of them is envisioning a a positive future. And the second is actually sort of figuring out how to get there. Um, And I teach a I teach a class on ecotopian visions. And it's quite hard to find material, (laughs) you know, having a a class on sort of dystopian uh, ecofiction is is quite easy. Um, You know, you could probably pick stuff from the last five years that would uh, fill such a course, but something that is not just, you know, utopian, but actually just positive um, is quite hard. And almost all the things that I can find are are set in California, (laughs) for better or worse. So I think there's a sort of dual problem, one of, of we haven't really imagined a sort of thriving sustainable, lively, vibrant future, and then the question of, of how we get there. And I I, I think Mishnook is a great term. I think one of the other terms that I really uh, like for this purpose is the term ilshale, which is a, a Norwegian term for people that make things happen. Um, it, it translates literally as fire souls. And so it, it's sort of the uh, the authors argue that, you know, whereas we have terms like actor or agency, that are are quite boring and kind of clinical even even a term like change maker i think is kind of kind of uh ho-hum um Il-shale sort of speaks to the the non-linearity of social change the possibility that things can sort of catch fire as we've seen for example with uh, Greta thunberg um and so i think you know these terms can be useful in helping us potentially see the world differently Right. Instead of thinking that we need to get everyone on board for social change, we can imagine it as a kind of conflagration. And so we're trying to have some terms that can help people imagine a better future and also some some loan words that might help us get there. Certainly
0: what I find most amazing and inspiring and just so pleasant about this book is the the great wealth of um, resources, intellectual resources that exist to uh, imagine these futures and the open-endedness of how one can explore this book and combine them in our own ways. And a lot of what we've talked about so far, these loan words from other languages and other cultures, I'm interested too about the words that come from activist culture and what you see as being particularly useful coming from those and how they help us make sense of our future.
1: Sure. So I think one of the, the best uh, examples there is um, uh, sociologist David Pellow's term, uh, total liberation, um, which he wrote about in a, in a book of the same um, title, but sort of compressed here into a, a short entry. And total liberation is a term that comes out of uh, animal rights activism and radical environmentalism, and sort of signifies a, a total flattening of hierarchies. So the idea that we should pursue Um, You know, not just an end to uh, racism and sexism and ableism, but also speciesism. Um, And so it's a term that he, like a lot of our authors, introduces as something that might be able to help us imagine a different future where we sort of um, get rid of one of these last taboos. Um, But also a term that is potentially problematic. And so he discusses the way that sort of radical environmentalists have sometimes made this kind of dreaded comparison between Slavery and animal suffering, um, but also puts the term forward as a, a term that might help us uh, imagine um, social change of a kind that we need at this moment in time.
2: It's nice that you went to total liberation as a kind of um, ethos, Matthew. I mean, the other term that I think of is blockadia uh, that Randall Amster writes for us and. Um, for the collection. And, I mean, both have a similar kind of, like, refusal built into them, right? Like a refusal to uh, distinguish or set limits on emancipation in Pelo's work, right? Like, it needs to be a total liberation. Um, mm-hmm. And in Amster, the the scale that is written about is the scale of, like, intervening in... Extractivist practices, right? In 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 forming not just one blockade, but a kind of culture of the blockade, um, in a kind of interruption. And we see these kind of struggles, like in terms of extractivism, but but also uh, in the Bay Area, shutting down of the ports and and this kind of thing. They're referred to um, as circulation struggles, right? Like the thought being that interrupting the flow of capital allows for a kind of moment of rupture where something else might um, be able to emerge, if only for a moment. Um, But these two, both of them try to intervene in that impasse between uh, knowing and acting, uh, which I think is, is useful. I mean, to work through that impasse and try and pull it apart. And that's what activist cultures offer um,
0: within this book. Can we talk for a moment about appropriation? Because, you know, in a sense, this book is advocating that we adopt into our daily vocabulary certain kinds of words and ideas that come from many cultures, including indigenous cultures around the world and um, and creates the space for these to be uh, changed and adapted to meet our needs. So I'm wondering a little bit about how you're thinking about this balance between the ethical responsibilities we have around appropriation and the need to come up with new ideas and new vocabularies to to react to the Anthropocene.
1: Yeah, I really like the way you phrased that. Um, It's an incredibly important question, and it's one that we discuss at length in our introduction and that many of the entries themselves pick up. Um, There's a difference between learning from other cultures and ways of life and cultural appropriation. Um, We're very conscious that borrowing, however conscientious, does carry the risk of cultural appropriation, especially because, um, as most listeners will be aware, English speakers have been and continue to be responsible for staggering material and cultural theft from indigenous people in particular and and people of color uh, as well. Um, But we argue that with this history firmly in mind, it's crucial to learn from and think with other cultures. And we think that this can be achieved without the symbolic violence of uh, romanticizing or reducing the complexity of previously unfamiliar worlds and um, worldviews. We're well aware of the way that environmentalists have done this in the past, and uh, Brent and I edited this book to make sure that didn't happen. And I think uh, readers will find that our introduction and indeed each entry is pretty careful and, and, um, and thoughtful about this. In a sense, this book is about the value of internationalism and um, cultural hybridity, especially in a moment of xenophobia and uh, wall building. The long word is an appropriately relational linguistic category for listeners that aren't familiar. Loanwords are terms that are adopted into one language from another without translation, and their frequently irregular spelling and, and pronunciation often advertises their difference, demonstrating that language, like culture itself, is always heterogeneous. Um, it's worth noting here that uh, English is a particularly eclectic language. One database found that 42% of English words are actually loanwords. Um, And while loanwords aren't really loaned in the sense that they are incorporated into one language without the prospect of of being returned at a later date, um, they definitely constitute a kind of gift. Um, And in fact, linguists sometimes refer to the language of origin as the donor language. Um, And so we view these loanwords in the context of the gift exchanges that occur in many cultures. Um, Anthropologists attest that gift-giving isn't a simple act, um, but serves to weave communities together into dense networks of, of mutual indebtedness, exchange, and interdependence. So we argue in our introduction that accepting and using these loanwords makes English speakers obligated to return the gift with, with gratitude, with respect, um, and with equal moral consideration. Um, and the last thing I'll notice is that because this book is written in English, it's focused on the value that these loanwords might bring to English speakers, um, And given English's global popularity and the disproportionate and continuing responsibility of many English speakers for global socio-environmental injustices, we do see this as a valuable intervention. That said, I think it's worth making clear that neither Brent uh, and I, nor the authors or the artists involved in the book, believe that English, uh, with or without these loanwords, ought to replace any of the 7,000 languages that are spoken today. And in fact, that's why we call the book An Ecotopian Lexicon, instead of the ecotopian lexicon. So instead of proposing a kind of uh, linguistic monocrop, we hope that uh, this book might highlight the world's linguistic and cultural diversity and also expand the collective imagination of environmental possibilities. In
2: in the foreword, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's foreword, he says there ought to be a a term for a word that's borrowed, but not given back. Um, And it's sort of, even the concept of the loan word itself is, has that kind of exchange to it. Um, Has that kind of like it's on, it's on loan, but what does it mean to return something? And I mean, English is full, chock full of of loan words that we maybe don't think of as such that um, have kind of, their histories have been erased. So, I mean, I can speak in particular to um, Shikata Ghanay as a term that carries immense pain along with it. Um, And uh, there's a fine line between... I mean, we could have written the entry in a very different way that just looked at at the Mars Trilogy and just talked about how the term gets used there. But that, that would have passed over the history of the terms used um, by Japanese Americans and Japanese Canadians uh, in silence and, and that feels wrong to me and I mean I am feeling this that I really would like to say sorry to anyone who is caused pain by this entry. Um, It's a, it's a a messy and a, and a difficult
0: thing, right? Um, Yeah, Yeah, you know, one of the things I was thinking about with this book as well, is in in a certain sense, it's a snapshot in time, the of where we are right now and how we might think and the possibilities that, uh, face us in the future. Uh, and we know that for sure, if we would create such a book in 10 years time or 15 years time, it might be very different. And so I'm wondering a little bit about both the process of collecting these words and how you found them and edited them, but also if, if you see a possibility for an ongoing project here?
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question.
1: Um, The process was, you know, not that different from a typical edited book. We sort of reached out to people that we thought might have something to contribute because we're familiar with their scholarship or were recommended. Um, and then we put out a call for papers, which uh, was just kind of an amazing sort of diversity of, of terms from different places and different authors and and different subcultures. Um, and then, you know, the question was how do we sort of assemble this into something that actually fits as a as a volume and isn't isn't sort of overly repetitive or or um, or problematic in that way. I think there's definitely the potential for, you know, not just sort of a, a, someone else to do another book like this in 10 years, but for, for people to do similar books in other languages. And so when I gave a, a talk in the U.S. recently, somebody approached me afterward and said that they were sort of thinking about doing the same thing in Mandarin, um, which I thought would be amazing and is sort of exactly the kind of thing that we we wanted to do to sort of inspire creativity in different
2: ways. It's so awesome sharing this book in those kind of public contexts because as Matthew says people come up and they want to share terms. They're like, have you heard of this term? And like pretty regularly the answer is like no, but please do tell me about it. Like there's an energy here that that is really exciting. And I think that you're right, Lance, to say that this is a real slice of our moment now. Um, one of the ways that mm-hmm. I think of that is, um, I it wasn't until we were nearing the end of the process that I read NK Jemison's broken earth trilogy. And I'm just like, oh, we should have talked about origins and erogeny, this kind of, um, fantastical, but also science fictional capacity that these figures in this book have is that they can, um, draw heat out of the air around them and still tectonic plate movement like there's this really visceral material way that these figures engage with the living earth that i'm just like this this could have been such an interesting thing to explore for a contributor or or at some point in the book um which is a nice thought to have that there, there's so much vibrancy to um, our intellectual life uh, here on this planet that uh, there, you one could imagine further conversations. Um, one way that we're thinking about the book's ongoing um, development impact is that uh, Matthew and I decided that any um, any funds accrued from sales of the book itself, or from merchandise, which we have, and we can talk about a little bit in a moment, maybe uh, will be gathered and redistributed through micro grants. Um, We haven't got to the point yet where we know precisely how that's going to work. But I'm excited to see um how people's enjoyment of this book can be turned back outward and and shared in some in some way with communities who are doing similar uh similarly motivated
0: projects maybe in 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 different trajectories hmm. is it and you know one of the things we we haven't gotten around to is the inclusion of uh visual works within this book and i want to make sure that's here i think it's an important part of the book and adds an interesting and uh distinct dimension to it can you explain the decision to include these and and what um what they achieve or what you hope they achieve
1: sure um Humans are really visual.
0: We could do some great work
2: on the (laughs) Um, podcast of like, I'll hold the book up. I'm holding the book up now. Oh, it's so beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and look at this one.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah. Folks should definitely, you know, go to our website, ecotopianlexicon.com and can check out the artwork as we're, as we're discussing it. Um, But we felt like, you know, humans are so visual and we liked the idea of this book being a kind of conversation between, you know, originary, um, authors or subcultures or cultures, and then a critical thinker, and then an artist. And we also liked the sort of having a really diverse range of artistic styles um, represented. And so there's everything from sgraffito etchings to Dia de los Muertos prints um, to sort of Buddhist sculptures uh, from Thailand. Um We felt like that would be something that would be interesting, um, different, compelling, um, imaginative um, that might force people to think about these entries in different ways and might also be sort of a different way of interacting with the text. And so there's 14 essays that have artwork connected to them um, but there's another 16 that don't. And so, you know, as as I, when I taught some chapters uh, last semester, you know, I asked some of the students to sort of respond with their own um, artwork. And and that's one way that people can sort of engage with these things to try to reimagine it in a different way.
0: Are there any aspects of this book that we haven't covered that you want to make sure are here or any specific terms that are uh, are your favorites that you want to talk about? Well, I kind of have the same question for
2: you, Lance. Is there a term that that really you went to first or were drawn to?
0: The two terms there were two terms that were greetings. One I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation here, but it's uh I think it's Gaibale. Jibale. Mm-hmm. And, Jibale. Okay, sorry, i totally uh and then the other one by John Esposito, uh in Laketch in uh, Alakin. Uh, or again I probably butcher the pronunciation. But I, I found both of these extremely compelling, uh, especially the first one, uh, which is about how uh, we can rethink and recognize work um, in our communities and recognizing what other people uh, contribute to our communities, and to recognizing uh, work as a um, it is what I suppose builds and holds together a community, and I find the rethinking the work and revaluing work to be one of the most important uh, aspects of what we need to do to rethink the our societies as we face the the Anthropocene and the crisis of global warming, and to rethink what uh, creates value, what is value, and what it means to participate, and who participates and and I suppose what living things participate. So I found both of those terms to be uh, especially appealing and and promising to me.
2: Yeah, thank you for that really eloquent description of, of Jabale, which transliterates to thank you for the work that you do, right, like that's how you would say hello in Uganda. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about rethinking work, uh, especially in terms of like waste, you know, let's stop doing things just for the sake of doing things and, and try to bring a bit more intention, intention to it. I mean, that's a separate conversation perhaps, but yeah, that's great. Yeah. But it's also,
1: um, I also just found it, uh, Powerful, the idea that the greetings might have such an impact. And so both authors sort of talk in various ways about the ways that greetings kind of set the terms for everything that follows. And so starting with uh, sort of thanking someone for the valuable work they're doing, whatever that is, and sort of acknowledging that everyone is doing work in different ways, um, setting a sort of a, a kind of communitarianism. And then the other term is uh, in la, quech a la kin, which is um, I am another you. And sort of the idea that this is starting a sort of conversation with a sense of, you know, deep empathy and potentially one that goes beyond um, species borders. Um, So, yeah, I found the the greetings to be especially powerful for me as an editor.
0: Yeah. And both of those together are, you know, also, um, you know, a way to recognize non-human work. Right. Mm -hmm. And to and they set a precedent for thinking about non-human work is is omnipresent uh and again is as you were saying it's the the daily uh and the everyday experience of using such words that um are i find especially impactful and especially inspiring as opposed to very heavy-handed academic works right so what are each of you working on now what's your next project
2: do you want me to go first here matthew Sure, you can go first. So I have an academic uh, monograph. It's, you know, my dissertation into book kind of moment um, called uh, Remainders of the American Century, uh, post-apocalyptic novels in the age of U.S. decline. Um, And it's uh, with Wesleyan University Press. And it kind of looks at and tries to take apart the the whole mode of post-apocalyptic writing. Uh, I mean, this kind of, in some ways, picks up on what Matthew was saying about teaching dystopian fiction. Like, it's so so easy to find a plethora of post-apocalyptic texts. And the book kind of tries to think through what this version of hand-wringing is about and tries to look for any kind of utopian content there. Um, because I think at the core, post-apocalyptic texts are trying to imagine some sort of future after catastrophe and yet they often fall back on on old ways of thinking old ways of doing things and this is what i sort of think of as the remainder um
1: i am doing some work in in what i call empirical eco um which is sort of a, a subfield um that i'm uh trying to to develop um with some colleagues sort of uh, actually measuring the influence of uh, environmentally engaged texts on their readers. Um, and then I'm in the process of, uh, of writing a book that's a little bit more sociological, that's um, focused on the uh, sort of ethical, political and psychological dimensions of, uh, of reproductive choices in the age of climate change.
0: Well, I look forward to both of those works. They they seem uh, right at my alley. I hope I get to interview both of you about them when they come out. I'd love that. Uh, Well, uh, Matthew and Brent, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so, so much for creating this amazing book, which uh, I'll just put a little plug. It would make a great holiday gift. Mm. Yeah, we're so glad you're enjoying it. Thank Thank you, thanks, Thank you so much.